Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and we're here today for another episode of Page Chewing, and we're here with P.L. Stewart. We hear from Fantasy Book Critic and our friend Davis Ashura, the author. So thank you for joining us today, Davis. Oh, I'm happy to join you. Yeah, and uh, did, will you start us off with an, with an introduction? Sure. Um, I'm Davis Ashura. I uh, practice medicine, and I write epic fantasy novels. So that's a weird combination, but somehow it works for me. I published my first novel in 2014. That was A Warrior's Path. And my books um, are epic fantasy, although there are a couple that would be YA. Uh, those I wrote for my kids, my, my teenage sons. Um, but all of them incorporate aspects of my, uh, of my Indian heritage as I understand it. Uh, I was born in India but grew up in America, so I don't have the same level of knowledge of some aspects of Indian culture as uh, say Mahir would have, uh, but I love uh, my culture, my heritage that I came from, specifically my Telugu culture. So I wanted to make sure that the characters that I wrote about looked like people that I know who are Indian, uh, and that my culture is uh, is used in a in a way that's that's honored. So that's basically it. My most recent series. Uh, is Instrument of Omens, which is kind of like mo my homage, there it is, to uh, to Wheel of Time and Lord of the Rings. And then I've got a new book that just released on November 8th called Blood of a Novice, which uh, I'll be happy to talk about later. Nice. Awesome. And Mihir, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes. So, I hi, everyone. My name is Mihir Wanchu. I am a reviewer for Fantasy Book Critic. Uh, I have been a fan of Davis Asura when I first got introduced to his series, the Outcast and uh, the Cast and Outcast series, beginning with the Warriors Path. Uh, I've gotten to know him better, and I recently got to read his newest book, A Blood of the Novice, which was pretty cool. And uh, you can find me at Fantasy Book Critic, where uh, and thanks to Steve, he tolerates me and he gets me to <laughs> join in on these talks. So this is really wonderful. I'll cut it out. <laughs> and uh, PL, will you give us an introduction? Uh, hey, I'm P.L. Stewart. I, I'm sure I'm about to become uh, one of Davis's newest fans. Uh, my TBR is just keep growing. It sounds amazing. Cover looks great, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, Davis. That, Thank that, you. Uh, showing up. So I'm sure that your books will definitely be going on my TBR after this broadcast. Yeah. Oh, man. Gorgeous. Yeah. Sounds right up my alley. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm the author of the John Kingdom Saga. I am also an assistant yeah. editor with the Thank You with Before We Go blog. I'm the led by the wonderful Beth Tabler. Steve's also a blogger there. And um, I, uh, I'm also one of the co-hosts with Steve and the lovely and talented Taylor from the two pages uh, of page chewing. So I'm honored to be here today with Steve and here, uh, who you know I, I know and love, and of course, uh, great to meet uh, Davis. Good to meet you too. Awesome. Um, here, did you want to kick us off with a question? Yes. So, Davis, can you tell tell us you you have four different series which are going on? If I'm not wrong, like the Cast and Outcast is finished, the William Wilde series is finished, but the right. Instruments of Omens is ongoing, and mm -hmm. you have started a new series as well. But all of them are set in this unique concept called the Anchored Worlds. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that and how you got started into writing all of these fantastic books? Uh, sure. Um... So I wrote the cast and the outcast, and I thought the, the series was done and the characters were done. And then I started writing uh, the first book in the Chronicles of William Wilde. And that's the, the first two of those are kind of YA, which I wrote for my teenage sons. Um, and when I started writing it, 
one of the main characters from Cast and the Outcast insisted that she belonged in that story. <laughs> that was never my intention. And so somehow she crept in and then she brought along some other people and suddenly I had these these two universes that I needed to unify. And um, and there's a, a way of traveling from realm to realm. So it's not world to world. It's more like universe to universe. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you can actually travel in both time and space. And so I needed a name for it. So I came thought, what would be kind of cool? Well, they're traveling along these lines and they, they anchor to each other in these realms. So that's how I came up with the Anchored Worlds. And I'd always known I'd wanted to write a big epic fantasy series like Wheel of Time. I mean, I, I love that series. And so while I was writing William Wilde, I also created the world that became uh, the world of Instrument of Omens. And so I tied those two together in William Wilde. And there you have it. Suddenly I had three worlds with references to two others and uh, kept on going from there. Thank you. Thank you. So now that you have given us an introduction, you know, to the to the this concept that you have written about, what would what what is your preference for you know which book or series should the reader start out with? Because you have three different ones, right? Yeah. So the the thing about it is that um, they're they're all unified with uh, in, in a singular universe or universes, the anchored worlds. But you don't have to actually read any of the others to enjoy a, a series. So if you started out reading William Wilde. You actually don't have to have read Cast and the Outcast, and you don't have to go on to read Instrument of Omens. Uh, that story is relatively complete, although there's some hanging threads that I'll eventually get to. Uh, and the same goes with Instrument of Omens. You don't have to have read William Wilde or Cast and the Outcast, or if you choose to read the Cast and the Outcast, you don't have to go on to read anything else. Personally, I think the best book I ever wrote was actually the last book I wrote, which was mm -hmm. Blood of a Novice. Mm -hmm. um, and if you read Blood of a Novice, again, you don't have to read anything else that I've <laughs> written to appreciate and enjoy it. Um, I think the best series I've written so far is Instrument of Omens, though. Uh, and so if you wanted to get a taste of what I'm like at my best, it would probably be that one. And you said you wrote your first book for your teenage sons. What was their reaction when you when you so produced it was actually, the book? <laughs> it was actually my fourth book. It, so I wrote, wrote The Cast and the Outcast, and then I wanted to figure out something to write. And they were whining that they couldn't find any books to read in the bookstore. Um, I guess they weren't into, you know, princesses saving the day. They wanted the prince again. And so... Um, you know, William Wilde was born from that. And they, they read the first book, both of them. They enjoyed the first book. And then they never read anything else after that. And I was like, you sons of them. And so after I realized they weren't going to, I was like, all right, then I'm just going to write what I want as far as epic fantasy is concerned, because this is pulling teeth trying to write YA for me. It's just a, a different skill set. Um, and there were so many cool things that I felt like I wanted to include that would definitely drive it towards epic fantasy. Uh, and, and the thing is, is that YA still deals with a lot of hard, harsh issues. Um, but I wanted room to expand the world. I, I wanted to really kind of blow it up. So 
once I realized they weren't going to read it, I was like, all right, <laughs> can I write what I want? I'm writing bigger books too. And when you were writing uh, your YA books, what what are what are a couple of things that you wouldn't do so to not make it to kind of push the boundary for YA? So what what are a couple of things that you left out that you may have included if it hadn't been a YA book? If it hadn't been YA, I probably just would have um, dived straight into the bigger, uh, more robust world building, um, and. And, and instead, I had to do that later on in the series, sort of explaining how magic works, what, what the history and the lore is like. And I think those are the things that I would have wanted to do, like really go ahead and start talking about why they're doing what they're doing from the very beginning. Um, I might have aged the characters a little bit more uh, because they're start, they start out as seniors in high school. So, you know, when you're a senior in high school, unless you're like, Frank and Joe Hardy with their own cars and boats and stuff. <laughs> you're kind of limited in, in what you're able to to, uh, to do as far as just getting around. So those are some of the things that I probably would have wanted to do uh, if I didn't write YA. So Davis, if I may ask you a question, you mentioned this, like, you know, you have a strong love for, you know, epic fantasy. Oh, yes. Um, when did it begin? Like, what was the book or author or series even which kind of you know ignited the love for you? So I, I'm uh, I'm kind of old, um, and so uh, I grew up back in the in the '80s, and I started out. It was kind of weird, but I started out reading Hardy Boys. Believe it or not, when I was mm-hmm. in fourth grade, I, I just remember seeing a kid on the bus reading a Hardy Boy book all the time, and I was like he looks like he's having kind of fun. So maybe I should try that. And so I read that. I read a bunch of biographies. And then I started reading Greek, Norse, uh, Roman mythology. And then I read The Hobbit. And that's when everything changed. <laughs> so I read The Hobbit. And I have been chasing that drug throughout the rest of my life. Um, you know, I read The Hobbit. Then I read Lord of the Rings. Then I read The Silmarillion. Then I read... Uh, Sword of Shannara, Elfstones of Shannara, mm-hmm. Thomas Covenant. And so I've been chasing that that same feeling that I got from The Hobbit pretty much ever since I was 13 years old. Um, but that was the, the first book. It was The Hobbit that, that changed everything. And sometimes you can find it in, in science fiction, like I found it in Isaac Asimov's books, even in um, Arthur C. Clarke's books, um, The City and the Stars or even Dolphin Island, uh, Rendezvous with Rama. Yeah, that was a great one. Uh, I got teased a lot for that one because that's my real name. But um, there were so many books that I was chasing that feeling, uh, probably still even to this day. Well, that's awesome. I think we're somewhat uh, contemporaries, Dave's in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, 53. So those are a lot of the books you're talking about are books that I... I started out reading when I was younger too, so it's just fascinating. Um, if I may ask you a question, I was wondering before we came on on uh, we went live, we were just chatting, and we understand that you're a medical doctor. Um, does does your your experience as a medical doctor does that play into your writing? Is there an element of that that's that's managed to seep into uh, your writing? Um, not really, uh, because what I do is 
sort of uh, nerdy and odd, and it doesn't really lend itself to action um, or conflict. I mean, it, it could if, if I wanted to, but I think it would only be appealing to another endocrinologist and everybody else would be like, what the heck is this crap? So I, <laughs> it's not like I'm a trauma surgeon. They would have lots to draw upon or even just a general surgeon or even a, uh, you know, anybody in, in an acute care setting would have a lot more to draw upon that would seem more relatable to the general readership. Um, now, in terms of, how I approach the writing that's also not related to medicine. But the one thing that I think that being a doctor has given me is um, when, when you go through med school, residency, fellowship, you're studying for all these tests all the time. And um, so the ability to focus and just lock your brain in to what you need to do at that particular moment, which is right, that's been invaluable. So uh, that's something that uh, just came with training and helped me transition as far as my writing is concerned. So when I sit down to write, I can do it and and lock in to do it. So that's that's the one area that becoming a doctor probably helped more than anything else. And um, so uh, I'm, I'm fascinating fascinated by by your works like i said it sounds it sounds right up my alley um you, you you talked about before about um a bit about the fact that uh you know culturally you're very proud of your culture um you know your, your heritage does that show up um at all in, in your work is there a link there between you know your background um as yeah. Indian person and your work so i'm specifically from a state called andhra pradesh and the way we named things like uh, maternal grandmother versus paternal grandmother is different. Amama, Nainama. And those kind of familial relationships, it's elegant and it's it's exact and it's it's really beautiful. So I wanted to include those simple things into the to the writing. And that's in the cast and the outcast. Um, everything from even the philosophy and theology of Hinduism. Uh, I, I don't bring in uh, you know, gods or anything like that, because I think that's kind of, you know, insulting to take a religion's gods and pretend that it's mythology, because that's not mythology to a billion people, it's religion. So I don't touch on that. But things like religious ceremonies, or spirituality, or the philosophy underlying the theology, I do utilize that uh, in the cast and the outcasts instrument of omens and especially blood of a novice um and again the way the characters appear they look like indians that was intentional as well so i those are the things that you know jump off the top of my head as far as bringing uh india into the books uh, as far as i can tell and of course the cast and the outcast that's an obvious you know titling there's the mm -hmm. caste system in india then there's the outcast and so, um, you know, I had my own point to make about that. So that's why I wrote it the way I did. So, Davis, if I may, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, you didn't want to pull in, the, put in the, the gods and everything, but you did draw a lot from mythology. You did draw in mm -hmm. a lot from the culture. One thing, because I read, I remember reading the cast in the first book, and I remember there's, there's a huge uh, thing that you brought in was the Rakshasas. 
Now, for yeah. readers who might not know that, you know, because you, you and me, like any Indians, like we know what the Rakshasas are, we know the whole mythology, and you know, they're, they're complex creatures. They're not necessarily evil, but they're complex creatures with, you know, sometimes good ability, sometimes, you know, bad sides, but everything. They're, it's like the whole gamut of them. But for the readers and who might, you know, want to read those cast and outcasts, but are, but are a little bit worried that, am I going to understand this or not? Can you talk a little bit more about the element of Rakshasas and how you kind of drew them in and what makes the story so epic? Sure. Uh, there's a there's a realm called the realms of the Rakshasas that that I created for the for the story, and um, in in the universe that of the anchored world, there's there's Devesh, which is God, which is a name of God in, in Hinduism, and on the opposite side, there's the uh, there's just an unnamed being, and so it's almost like a, a, a bipolar universe where realms will swing between Devesh and the unnamed one. And uh, the realms swing more towards uh, towards the unnamed one. And um, within the realms, there are the Rakshasas, who are basically people. Uh, they're powerful people, but it's a dystopian world uh, because that's who the Rakshasas are. They have some good elements, so they actually can be redeemed um, and they can rise so in other words instead of a fallen angel i'm dealing with risen demons in some sense which i don't think anyone's ever actually written about risen demons before but in instrument of omens an entire world of risen demons tries to return to to god basically and uh and that's where the rakshasas came from i always wanted to play around with this notion of can evil be forgiven can they can they forgive themselves and reach forgiveness through God? And so my answer was, I hope so. That's kind of deep, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. And uh, you also mentioned like the covers, they, you know, they represent like, a, a, like how typical, you know, Indian person, especially the first book, if I'm not wrong, the first yes. book of Warrior's Path, you know, I know that the, the previous covers are a little different when you're starting out, but then you managed to get them, like, you know, redone with the new artists and the new covers for the Cast and Outcast series are tremendous. Can you talk a little bit more about them, like, and how you got them? Like, did you work with the artists? Yeah, or did you yeah. Do, like, a sketch? Yeah, so I, I started publishing in 2014. Uh, I'm an indie author, meaning I do it myself, except for my audio books, which uh, my uh, publishers produce for me. But I didn't know anything in 2014. I mean, I basically wrote the book, edited the book, hired who I could as far as an editor is concerned to do the copy editing and the, the grammar. And then I hired a friend to do the cover art and slapped it together, put it out on Amazon. And I was like, all right, let's see what happens. And I didn't have any expectations that anything would happen. I thought, at least it's published and I like it. So maybe somebody else will. And I was shocked that anybody actually bought the book. And I even remember when I sold a hundred copies, I mean, I was like texting my wife, it's at 99, it's at 99 sales. And then it got to a hundred and we celebrated by having dinner, you know, the whole family, just, just because I didn't expect it to sell 10, much less a hundred. And then it kept on selling. And then after about a year, I realized my covers really, needed work and they weren't great the ones that i had and uh, and a friend of mine jacob cooper sort of was like you know your book's really good but your covers aren't really selling them maybe you ought to think about 
upgrading them a bit. So I got second covers, which were fantastic by Jeff Brown. And then um, a friend of mine, uh, two friends of mine, Bryce O'Connor and Phil Tucker, they're, they're also authors. Mm-hmm. Um, they were using an artist from Greece named Andreas. And so I was, they, I love their covers. They, they're gorgeous. And so they got me in touch with Andreas. And it, originally I was just going to ask Andreas for like a character sketch. But when he created what he created, uh, and it wasn't the cover for book one, that became the cover for book three. I saw that and I was like, I, I've got to have that because that is just amazing. So basically what I did was I, I described the setting of the, of the character and the setting. And then Andreas like lifted everything that I could have imagined and didn't and created this incredible artwork with it. And so when I saw that, then I had to work with him for uh, for a Warrior's Path and book two as well. And then um, I I also hired him for, of course, uh, Instrument of Omens. Of course, now he's super busy with uh, Magic the Gathering, so he's not able to do uh, do the covers anymore. So I've had to move in a different direction, but it's still the same process of providing a brief, which is basically, this is what their character looks like, what they're doing. This is the setting. And these are some images that I sort of have in mind that uh, hopefully will inspire you to create what uh, what will work. And that's where we go with. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. So Davis, like, I mean, I'm someone who can definitely learn from you because, you know, I'm, I'm relatively new to the to the indie publishing thing. I've only published two books. I'm currently working my third, but you've been in this game a long time. You're a seasoned veteran and you were you were an indie author long before it became somewhat vogue to be an indie author. Yeah. And 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 I, I can't imagine I I was it's fascinating for me to uh listen to experienced indie authors you, you who came in, in at a time when you know uh, people didn't really understand what indie uh authorship was all about. And, um, you know, can you tell us what the landscape was like then? I mean, how did you, what made you decide to uh, publish, self-publish as opposed to traditionally publishing, which back then would have been, I think, um, uh, you know, seemingly yeah. um, the, the, the way to go. Uh, exactly. What made you decide to go, but, you know, go, go that way? And, and how's that all turned out? So it, it turns out that there's a lot of, um, a lot I didn't know in 2014. Uh, I still don't know uh, a lot now. But back in 2014, the reason I, I went India is because, you know, I sent out like 100 query letters to agents, got zero response. In, in turn, nobody even wanted to look at the book, much less, you know, even read a chapter. They wanted nothing to do with it. It was just all form letter, form letter, form letter. So, you know, I, I did that and I was like, all right, screw it. And I'll just do it myself. And, uh, you know, I own my practice, so I'm not afraid of, you know, doing business. So um, I published it. Now, I didn't know a lot back then because I told you my cover was terrible. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and so in order to really um, make it as, a, as an indie author, there has to be certain elements that will capture a reader's attention. The cover doesn't have to be beautiful. It just has to be enough for somebody to click on the link and then the blurb is where where you really need to gather their attention. I didn't know any of these things. I didn't have a great cover and I didn't have a good blurb. So I would have done a lot of things differently, but nobody knew what they were doing back then. Like if you look at Michael Manning's very first book, uh, Blacksmith's Son, 
I mean, it had this weird, like, I don't even know what it was. It's just, it's a much better cover now, but back then I, I just thought, what is he doing? But um, we were all just kind of like playing around, trying to figure it out. And as things have progressed, we've become more professional in how we approach that publishing aspect because there's a lot more resources. So back in 2014, I, I don't know if ArtStation was a thing. I know DeviantArt was a thing, mm -hmm. but finding really good artists out there was really tough. I, I didn't know how to do it. Now you do know how to do it. Look on ArtStation or ask people because there's so many authors out there that are willing to tell you these are the artists that I use. There wasn't a, a big wide pool of great editors out there either, but nowadays you know, with the big publishing houses basically farming out all this work. I mean, they still have in-house editors. But, you know, these people are not making great living, you know, a great living in New York City with New York City rents. So they kind of need, you know, some extra work. And so there's a lot of them that are doing side gigs uh, to do editing for people. That wasn't really available in 2014. So that professionalism, uh, is is available now that I didn't have awareness of uh, back in 2014. Like, how would I have wanted to put a more professional-looking book together? Now, this is totally different than the creative writing aspect because that's that's an art, right? What we're talking about is I didn't know the business of writing, uh, of publishing, and that's something that I've kind of which, which is two separate things. There's the art of writing, business of publishing. And I didn't know anything about the business of publishing. And I've learned more about the art of writing by hiring better editors over time. Is this something that, um, you know, now that you are essentially are an entrepreneur and entrepreneur and you've been successful, obviously, and kudos to you for doing it, because um, not everyone can be successful um, running their own business, irrespective of what that business is. So you have a successful medical practice and you're successful as a self-published author. So, you know yourself a pat on the back. Um, so is this something that, is this for you, is this the path? Are you uh, thinking in the future of revisiting traditional publishing? Are you quite content and happy to uh, continue to pursue uh, your, your writing through self-publishing? What's, you know, what's, what's, what's in store for the future, you think, if you can disclose any of that? I don't know. Um, I'm pretty mercenary right now with my, with my writing because you know, when I when I tried to get anybody interested in casting the outcast, nada. William Wilde, nothing. Instrument of Omens, first book, Testament of Steel, nothing. I got crickets all the way down the line. And, um, you know, I, I've done pretty well. And so it's like, do I really need a traditional publishing house for anything at this point? The, the areas that they could help are get you into a bookstore, into a bricks and mortar bookstore. Uh, and there might be more opportunities, uh, you know, to have the, the book turned into some sort of game or, or mm -hmm. TV show or movie. I mean, those are like winning the lottery. I mean, how many are there, you know, mm -hmm. unless you're, unless your your intellectual property has sold millions of copies already, mm -hmm. it's just not likely. So it's kind of like if, if a traditional publishing house wanted something of mine I'd be happy to talk to them about it but um, 
from my perspective, the finances would just have to make a lot of sense because mm -hmm. I'd be giving up a lot uh, mm -hmm. on the hope that they could do something for me. And so they better be able to do something. Otherwise, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> <laughs> So, Davis, I wanted to ask you this. You, I believe, even though you're indie, you're a self-published author, you're kind of a little bit of a hybrid, you know, uh, in the sense yeah. that, you know, because you have your uh, e-books and, uh, you know, upset, like the, the the paperback books published by you, but you have uh, your audio books published by Podium Audio, and you have got Nick, I'm, I'm sorry for mispronouncing his last name, I don't know, Podell, uh, you know, who does the audio for your, how did that come out to be? Yeah, Nick is a, uh is wonderful so i've gotten to work with so many wonderful creative people like andreas to do the cover art i mean that, those covers are so gorgeous and it's like man i wish i hope my books are as good as the cover because those covers are just awesome and i have nothing to do with it other than just saying can you do something like this andreas and he does something way beyond that um and same with nick um when I first uh, did an audiobook, I think that was in uh, 2015, and back then the audiobook market was was still kind of new, um, and so basically I emailed Nick, I cold called him and said, "Can you um, can you narrate my book?" And Nick was like, "All right, it costs this much. Can you do it? Uh, and send it to me, and I'll take care of it." And so um, that's basically what happened. Is I cold called Nick. And then he read the book and then he called me and then we spent like two hours going over name pronunciations, how character sounded. He sent me this big Excel file. So that was a lot of fun because I got to get to know Nick. And then the, uh, then I uploaded it myself, book one of Cast and the Outcast, onto Audible. And people started listening to it and it sold really well. And, um, and I think by then I had the better covers too. So that helped a lot. And uh, and then when I saw that it was doing well, then I was like, oh, I'm going to be able to afford to hire Nick for book two also. So then I hired him for book two. And then I reached out to Audible Studios, which is the uh, audiobook arm for audible.com. And then they purchased the, the rights to book three and also for William Wilde. And then um, for Instrument of Omens, I was actually just going to do that myself in Podium just made me an offer I couldn't refuse and so <laughs> I was happy to sign with them they've done a fantastic job and they made sure I got Nick uh, for uh, for Instrument of Omens but I've got Travis Baldry um, the author of Le Legends and Lattes for the most recent book um, Blood of a Novice and that was a funny story because uh, how did I get in touch with Travis I I was working with somebody and then I think I emailed Travis and just asked if I could talk to him. And so then I ended up having like an hour long Zoom meeting with him, convinced him to come down to Dragon Con in 2021. And, oh, then asked him nice. if, and then asked him, you know, if he would be interested in narrating a book for me. And, um, and then he was like, sure, man, I'll, I'd be happy to. And so I ended up selling the book to Podium, uh, Blood of a Novice, but it was under the agreement that Travis narrates. And so hmm. that's how I got Travis. Just kind of reached out to him. 
you're making it out to be way easy. I know it's not that easy because, you know, I've looked at your Audible, like, you know, the ratings of your books. They're in the thousands. That means, And you've gone from, like, Nick Bordel to Travis Baldry. Like, they're both really fantastic you know, narrators. So, like, kudos to you on that. But also, like, yeah. you know, it speaks to your books how good they are because, you know, I mean, you don't get the ratings like that just, you know, because if the book is okay or average or even if the narrator is good. The book needs to be good. The narrator needs to be good. That's when, you know, the, uh, the people who love it are going to give it such fantastic ratings. So, kudos on that, Davis. Well, thank you. I, I do appreciate that, but again, Travis is an, or I'm sorry, Nick is an incredible narrator. I really do think he makes the books better than uh, than anybody else, and the same holds true with Travis. I mean, um, he had to actually copy Nick because there are a couple of characters, at least one, um, who's who's in Blood of a Novice, who's been in other books, and she has a voice and Nick has created that voice. So I had to send voice files of Nick doing her voice and Travis had to mimic her. He yeah. did a great job. Wow, She's the same incredible. person that created the anchored world too. So yeah. that's incredible. Even just now to think of having audible there bears, the character the, the, of the caliber of Nick and Travis. I mean, Travis is a best selling author in his own right. Now, on top of being a famous audiobook uh, narrator, like, you know, and Nick is, is obviously well-known and, you know, well-established as a great, uh, you know, audiobook narrator. So, I mean, that's, I mean, uh, I think, I think you, uh, in my mind, I, I, I tend to agree with you, Davis, in that I think you have a really successful uh, game going on that I don't know what more a traditional publisher uh, could offer you except for backing up a boatload of cash uh, to your, to your front door for, you know, the rights to make your books into a movie or something. But other than that, or maybe international distribution rights like you know i mean i i don't know i think i think you're you're doing extremely well so well if there are any uh agents that listen in and they want to sell the foreign rights those haven't been sold and mm. and the books have sold really well you know so i would love to to talk to anybody about that but you know i'm not also jumping around hoping for it I, i'd rather just write i mean honestly that's what i get the most joy out of is you know, my wife sometimes asks me, or she used to ask me when a book was, when I finished the book, aren't you happy? And I was like, no, I mean, it's done, but it's, it was the process of writing that I, that I love the most. And, and then this business aspect, I do it because, you know, I could not do it and it'd be fine, but I choose to do it because I feel like I put a lot of work into it and I'm not just going to put the book in a bookshelf and Nobody reads it, so I, I fight to get them seen because uh, I feel like the books deserve it. Um, they deserve my effort, but my joy comes from the writing of them. I th that's where I that's where I really am happiest is when I get to write. And you had mentioned the the art of writing versus the uh, the writing business. Which is which is most time consuming, the writing portion or the business part of it? The writing. Absolutely, the writing. I, I don't, I mean, I'll, I'll spend time on advertising and on the cover art and contracts, all that kind of stuff, but that's, that's not something I'm going to put a lot of time into. Hmm. Um, I, I will put what time I need to put into it to make sure the book has a chance and do the best I can for the book. But, um, you know, some people, it's like, you know, those crazy couponers. Remember that from like five or six years ago? They would spend like four hours a day looking for coupons so that they could buy 
$400 of groceries for three bucks or something like that. So I'm like, just get a job, man. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's four hours a day, seven days a week. That's 28 hours. I mean, that's a lot of work, you know, for 400 bucks. Um, and I don't want to spend that much time doing that kind of stuff. And I'm in a good position that I don't need to financially uh, just because of the work that I do. So I would rather do what I enjoy doing and I'll definitely work on the marketing and the business, but that'll never be like the majority of the time. Uh, man, that would suck. That would just be misery. You know, it's funny you say that, um, Davis. And, and again, I, I applaud you for that. Um, I found that, and that's just because of the path I took, that now that the other stuff, the non-actual physically sitting at the computer mm -hmm. writing takes up more time for me than, uh, than, and I have my wife, my lovely wife, who's my business partner that manages a lot of the business side for me. But but even mm -hmm. still, with I, I find that the social media presence, I don't know how active you are on social media. You with social media, I'm involved with so many things like, page chewing, which is, has only been amazing. And, uh, you know, podcasts and interviews and, um, you know, social media. And I, I do a blog and then trying to interview authors and for a written book, I, I just found that the rest of that um, has taken up. Now it's the vast preponderance of that is taken over. You know, the writing of the book is actually now, um, you know, the easy part, not easy, but it's the part that, that takes, that I have to devote least amount of time to, which is a weird thing. Right. You know, of course, mind you, I'm not as prolific as you are, um, so I only write a book a year. So um, I suppose if I if I want to up that, um, you better. But but it's fascinating to hear you talk about, um, you know, the fact that, you know, and you've been so successful um, while still. So you're obviously you're very efficient and smart guy. You're working smarter, not harder. Maybe I'm just working harder and smart enough. But, um, you know, you're, you've obviously been successful devoting, uh, you know, a minimum of time to the marketing all that but of course you know um hopefully you know like you i you know i'll get smarter as i get older and more experience in the game and you know but but that's fascinating to hear your perspective about how as a fellow author how that you know what that balance is between the the actual writing and the and the market yeah stuff. i mean my my job takes a lot of time um this you know i have a full-time job and man if i had to do stuff on top of that, that I didn't enjoy. And it was like hours, like I was talking about those couponers doing four hours of stuff that <laughs> would, I would hate. I, I don't, I don't think I could do it. So I have, you know, I've always tried to build over time, not always, but once I was in a position where I could reach out and ask people for help and I paid them for their help to have them do things that I don't want to do. And they, then I offload that stuff that that saves me a certain amount of time and pressure and um and it's like if if you make a certain amount um and then you can hire somebody to do the work that you don't want to do why not do it like like i get terrible allergies mowing the lawn it only takes me a half hour i've got a small lawn but i'm not going to do it because <laughs> a getting my butt kicked mowing the lawn with the allergies will put me out for a day, you know, where I'm, you know, my face is all swollen and I can't breathe. B, I'd rather pay somebody else to do something that I don't want to do. And so, you know, I used to do all of the handyman stuff around my house. Like I, I'd replace toilets, uh, put in flappers, replace tanks, change light fixtures, 
build my own furniture just because I couldn't find anything I liked. And so I build what I needed. Um, I'd still like to do that, but most of the handyman stuff, it's like, yeah, somebody else can do that. I don't want to do it. I, I feel you. I feel you that, that way too. I, I totally concur with you on that. And I find as I get older, you know, I work for full time as well. I think what it came down to is me as you get older too, you realize that it's not just your time, but you know, if you get up, up on your ladder um, to do use troughs or to fix the roof or to yeah. fix the roof or your leaves off. Yeah. Or you're, or you're mudding. If you're mudding and tacking, you know, when you're putting mm -hmm. your drywall and you get hurt, well then that affects your regular job. And you know, when you get older, you know, you don't heal quite as quickly. And yeah. uh, you know, you being a doctor, you know that better than anyone. I mean, and, uh, bending you know, over just putting tile down at 52, 53, like we are. Yeah. Oh man, our backs will feel that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I find now it's a, uh, as you, I totally agree with you, it's a much better investment of, of money and, and, and saving yourself, you know, <laughs> to, to have someone else do it, right? And, and you know, um, but I think when it comes, sorry? I was going to say that's sort of the same perspective I took with some of the marketing. Like, there's so many aspects that I don't like, and whatever I can do to offload the stuff that I don't like, I'd like to do. So my wife knows this, and so she's starting to help me with some of these uh, different things. And then again, I, I hired some people to, to help with everything from a, you know business strategy for the future, which I'm kind of shelving to um, uh, just you know helping me with just, just different things that is not in my wheelhouse and it's not fun for me. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, in recent years, I've gotten my 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 stepson to take over website management and mm -hmm. you know with the social media stuff. And you know, of course, I said my wife. I said just like you, my wife is. She's always been from the beginning. Thank God, she was all in on yeah. being you know a business partner because you know when I went corporate business, we got a, a tax lawyer, we got an accountant, we we did the mm -hmm. whole thing, and 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 she deals with a lot of that. So I don't, and she frees me up some so much. I'm so grateful for. Thank you, Deb, honey. If you're watching, I love you. Uh, you know, but but yeah, I I I feel the same way. And but but do you ever find, Davis, that you know, in all of that, you know, you have people to help you do certain things, and but they, obviously they can't write for you, right? You have to do right. the writing, right? And and even yeah. so, I mean, you're a doctor; you have a very busy career, and you know, I'm sure there's times when perhaps you know, as much as you love writing, you may deal with you know what what's coming for it as writer's block or lack of inspiration, or you may hit a slump. Um, you know what I mean? Where you, you don't, you don't feel that. How do you handle those, those, those times when things are difficult? Maybe there's big stuff going on in your life and you're in your practice in your, your, your medical practice and whatever, like, how do you cope with, um, you know, slumps? Are you uh, the kind of try and just keep pushing through with writing? You know, no matter I, what? Like, I used to tr just sort of bang my head into the nail and try to drive it through with my forehead. And that hurt really bad. <laughs> that hurts a lot. Uh, there's a reason why hammers are used rather than your forehead. And um, as I've as I've gotten further along, I'll just take days off if I'm not if not I'm not in the mood to write that particular day. Um, I don't write. And what actually happens is that when I go back to it, I'm like way more efficient. And so you know. I, I, and I, and I don't worry about having to do the same, be in the same space. You know, I'm, I'm happy just going somewhere else, like going to the bookstore, going to the, my medical office, going to a different office, going to a different place and just trying it out and seeing 
maybe the writing will come easier here. And that's helped me a lot also, but I don't get too hung up on anymore on, I have to write this many words this particular day. Now, every day I'll write something, but it might just be a sentence or a paragraph. And it might be at the end of the day, like right before I go to bed, because my brain is decluttered. And then I write a sentence and suddenly I've written the thousand words I'm supposed to write, or I might just write a paragraph, but there's something there that I can then go to the next day if I want to. And I just give myself forgiveness for not, you know, stressing so hard over it. That was very extremely eloquently said, Davis. I think that last point, giving yourself, you know, forgiving yourself mm -hmm. when you don't mm -hmm. write, you know, as much as you think somewhere empirically, somewhere in the back of your head, yeah. you should write. I think that's that's a key. Uh, take, you know, being not too hard on yourself because right. it's a hard business writing. Yeah, um, you know, and, it's, a, and it's a hard art. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's very labor intensive. You're by yourself. You're alone. It's nobody knows what you're doing because to know what you're doing, they have to have read it. That's mm -hmm. a lot of time you're asking them to spend on it. It's not like looking at listening to music or something. I mean, that's people have an instant emotional response. It takes two or three minutes, maybe five. So it's very different uh, compared to what we do. And, and again, that this is something that I also learned is that there are people for whom the writing is an art, but it's also just a business. They're not interested as much as I am in creating something. What I write is what I want to read. And for other people, it's no, you have to write for the readership because your job is as an author. That's how you make your money. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, to, that's two totally different and valid ways of approaching writing. I, I write because I enjoy it and I don't have to get as hung up on it being my primary source of revenue. Mm -hmm. Other people, it is their primary source of revenue, so they don't have that luxury of just saying, well, I want to write just what I want to read. They have to be a little bit more uh, mercantile about things. And, and that's okay also. It's just the different ways we approach things. Oh. Davis, I wanted to ask you this because you mentioned all you know your writing styles and you take certain gap, gaps in between when you you know when you're having when you're having a hard day because of course your work mm -hmm. is your actual work is really you know mentally exhausting as well while being physically exhausting. You also write big books, you know. You don't write slim volumes, you know. I've read a few of your books. They're like, and I don't mean that as a pejorative. Like, you know, it's not a bad thing that you write big books, but they're 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 lengthy because there's a lot of world building, there's a lot of character work and everything like that. How on an average, how much time or how many months do you take to write a book? Now that you've like 12 plus books. About eight months. About Each eight book months. is about eight months. And that's so and it's not like it's a slow, steady eight months. It's like bursts um, of writing that just happens. And uh, so I might go a week where I'll write ten thousand words and the next week I might write thirty thousand. Um, but I in my head I have a mental clock that, you know, Nano Rhymo, that November novel writing month is supposed to be fifty thousand words in a month. In my head, I'm like, if those amateurs can do it, I can do it. So in my head, it's like, I got to get to 50,000 just to make sure that I can keep up with the amateurs. <laughs> Is there an ideal length that you plan out for a book before you start writing? Or you just like write with and take you like, and you just write it to until where you feel the story is complete? So in Instrument of Omens, um, 
like I said, those those were my homage to big fantasies, Lord of the Rings and Wheel of Time. Uh, and it really is an homage because there's elves and dwarves, my take on them. Uh, but you can see how they would come from, from Tolkien. And there's this long extended world history that goes back at least 3,000 years. And the people talk about events just like it's common knowledge. Like we'd say George Washington, you know, the man who is the first president of the United States and he was the general in charge of the Continental Army that fought off the British and won freedom for the 13 continent. Nobody says that. We just say George Washington and everybody knows who we're talking about. And that's how these people discuss their history. It's just history to them, but it stretches back 3,000 years. Like, and that's the way Jordan did with uh, Wheel of Time, which I thought was beautiful. But as far as those books were concerned, they were meant to be long because that's what I was trying to honor. Uh, and so I wrote to the length that uh, I wanted the books to, to land. I wanted 200,000 words. Just It was a nice, even number. And I didn't really want to go much further than that because then I was afraid I was going to be bloating the writing where extra stuff that sort of slows down the plot, the plot and is less clean. So that's where I'm, I'm trying to hit is 200,000 words. And with Blood of a Novice, the newest book, that's actually the longest book I've ever written. Um, that was also 200,000 words. And that's just, and, and, and have, have you all read um, Blood Song? Um, mm -hmm. by Anthony Ryan. Um, I love that book. That first book was just yep. beautiful. And it was always, I mean, it was so tight and that singular focus. I can't yep. remember the main character's name. Valen, Valen Alsorna. Yeah, so I love that tight focus. Like you were always in his head mm -hmm. and I loved being in his head. And so I took a lot of inspiration from that particular book for Blood of a Novice. And it's an epic fantasy, but it's got that really tight, tight lens on on the main character that I wanted to do. Camfold, right? Camfold, that's yes. right. Though yeah. he's not as proficient in martially as you know uh, as Waylon, he still has the yeah. same drive as Waylon. Like you know, you can see it from the start. Like he wants to be better as Waylon yeah. does as well. Yeah, uh, and some of that comes from um, just studying. Uh, high-end athletes, if you ever look at the life of uh, a high-end, whatever they are, wrestler, figure skater, anybody who's at the highest end of Olympic athletics, those people just are wired differently, especially if they're in any kind of uh, direct competition with somebody else where they're mm -hmm. physically touching them like a wrestler would. I, I, I mean, I always I always read the story of Kurt Angle. He won the gold in the in, was like, yeah, 1996, like 200 some odd pounds. Mm -hmm. uh, he was small for his for his weight class, and he trained for two months with a broken neck to get to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. He he wasn't going to stop. I mean, that's just a kind of an insane way of thinking about it. But that's kind of how I how I approached uh, some of the characters is that they're just different than the rest of us. We aren't going to train with a broken neck for two months, <laughs> but these ones will. Uh, I don't know if you saw the the Michael Jordan uh, series on Netflix. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Last Dance. That's the same thing. Yes, Last Dance. Yeah. You can see his drive. Like, and he talks about this. Like, it doesn't matter if my body is broken, if I'm like, when he, want, he wants to win, and that is it. Like, he will 
force everyone along as well to come up to his standards, you know, just to that because of his drive to win. Yeah. Uh, Tom Brady is the same way. It's like he almost bends reality that, you know, you think there's no chance he's going to win. All of us would be like, there's no chance we can win. Brady never has a doubt that he will win. And so they're down in the game, especially against Atlanta. They're down like 28 to three in the Super Bowl, yeah. going into the late third quarter. And I bet you Brady never had a single doubt they were going to win. And sure enough, they do. I mean, it's like reality bends to his will. Reality bends to Jordan's will. It's just bizarre. Mm -hmm. um, but those are some of the things that I wanted to, to talk about with Blood of the Novice is Cam has that drive. And he may not be the most powerful, but he will not. He never fails because of lack of confidence that he can win. Although he starts pretty rough. I can't wait to read that book. That listening to this to this part of the conversation and listening to the character, your character you're describing, Davis, reminds me specifically of um if you've ever read Evan Winter, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and like so Teo, he is that person. You know, he he becomes this super killing machine simply because he refuses to, you know, mm -hmm. be anything else. He's not the biggest, he's not the strongest, he doesn't start off as the most naturally gifted, but he and then he what he does, he does something. I don't want to spoil the book for anyway who hasn't yeah, read it, he's, but he's an absolute machine. He's a loon. Complete yes. and total loon. Yes. But he's a machine. Um, the main character and in instrument of omens would share a lot in common with him, except he'd be saying, There's a difference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you'd want to have a drink with with uh with Cinder Sherry. I don't know if you'd ever want to have a drink with <laughs> with Evan's main character. I'd be yeah. terrified of that guy. I'd yeah. say something wrong and he'd like stab me just because I took him off. <laughs> yeah, he seems pretty obsessive and uh you know, not the laid back guy that you want to go go to the bar with. So yeah, no, yeah. not at all. <laughs> he's tough, but he's fascinating, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, no, he's fascinating. I actually had a question for me here about um, Davis's book. So you've read um, a lot of a lot of Davis's work. So and you know, obviously, I trust your opinion implicitly as a blogger. You're you're so well respected. I love reading reading your views. You, you know that. But um, how would you describe um, Davis's? You know work how would you describe his writing style how would you oh. describe his work like how would you you describe it so first selling it to me as someone who hasn't read his work oh um so i would sell it to you as epic fantasy like he does epic he goes epic all out like there is no middle ground like he doesn't do low fantasy and the best part is like when he goes epic he goes the robert jordan route you get characters who are rich you get characters who go through arcs and you'll get a really dense world and when i say dense you know it's like there's like you know he mentioned there's a 3000 uh, you know year old history that is there you can feel it there and, uh, and also fun fact as an aside he has maps which i love so i'm a little bit partial to that so that you know forgive my bias about maps but uh as a map lover i love that there's map and there's like there's things which are shown which i know that there's going to be something else over there but no if you i would really recommend his uh you know the cast and outcast series just because it's finished it's three books again they're they're not as lengthy but they're bigger than most epic fantasy books and he has infused them with the indian mythology again not the usual indian mythology but the rakshasas you know i love that angle because he doesn't just present them as these bad guys they're they're essentially a little bit on the evil spectrum, but they're not all bad. There's there's a line of thinking to them. Now, his cast and outcast, the dark, there's not a dark lord, there's a dark lady. 
and you'll find out why because she's scary. Uh, I think Davis, uh, you know, mentioned this in one of the interviews as like she's a little bit schizophrenic in her way of thinking. And when you see her line of thinking, it makes sense. But of course, you know, you're not because that would make you something weird as well. But no, uh, I would recommend him to, you know, his books to you as, you know, he really, they're really epic, really character heavy, and there's a lot of action. Uh, if you like uh, military academy style where the world gets explored because the main character has amnesia, the instruments of omens is for you because this main character literally, not a spoiler, uh, the, the book begins with him coming out of amnesia, not exactly knowing who he is. And then slowly, slowly, he starts developing physically. And I don't want to say magically, but there's something metaphysically, so as to speak. And then you as a reader are also finding out more about the world because he's finding out more about the world. And it somehow connects with, you know, again, it's an anchored world. So there's connections to the other series. The William Wilde one, I've only read book one. Uh, it's, it's, it begins on YA. It's in, set in the 80s, if I'm not wrong. And it's on the East That's Coast right. in the high school. So there's like a fun element to that. But then the latter books, but there's also right in book one, you know that there's, it's a little bit darker than Harry Potter, that there's something else going on. Like in the first 10%, if I'm not wrong, there's like a really dark scene. I don't, again, I don't want to spoil it, but then mm -hmm. you, you, you know that it's not going to be light. And then his most recent book, which I love, I think, honestly, you should start with A Cast and Outcast. And then in between, you can read the instruments of, instruments of Omens because it's going to be big and it's going to be epic. And it's, again, you, I think your Drown Kingdom series and the Instruments of Omens are kind of similar. Like they're burgeoning world, really, you know, uh, like in-depth characters. And then the world history is there and you will find out more and more. And now I'll shut up. Okay, fantastic. Well, like I, I'm, I'm getting excited now to read uh, Davis's stuff. I'm getting really excited, so that's great. Thank you. But also, I'm a bit biased because I like his book. So you know, please take that as well. You know, there's always that. There's as a as a reader, you know, when you like somebody's books, you you want to push them on to everybody else. But like you know, there's keep that in mind. Like I'm a little biased because also, has Indian mythology. I find that it's very rare for me to find like Indian mythology done in epic fantasy and done really well. So there's that too. I want to point that out. But if you love Indian mythology or if you want to be explore cool Indian mythology, his books are absolutely great. Yeah, that is something that I am absolutely, absolutely fascinated with. And, um, you know, of course, I have limited knowledge, but I mean, uh, there's so many fantastic authors now uh, of any descent writing Indian, Indian inspired fantasy mm -hmm. that are so high on my TBR there. You know, they're, 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 they're eradicating a lot of books that I, that I otherwise had. <laughs> and, um, you know, Steve has had some of them on Peter John's channel. I've seen you know, uh, some some great ones. Gonti, we was on. Um, he was on. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, when was he on page doing? He was on Sons of Darkness. Yeah, last month. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, yeah. So I mean, I mean, yeah. No, the, I I'm I'm very excited to 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 read Davis's work. I'm very I'm very stoked, and I love. Oh, I am a big. Steve knows me well. Mihir knows me well. I'm all about epic fantasy world building. That's that's my jam. So sounds right up my alley. Yeah, I'm, I'm sold. Awesome. Thank you, Mihir. The check will come in the mail. <laughs> and uh, here, I think a, you had, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that um, the, the one thing about uh, Instrument of Omens is that it's not done. There's three books. They're pretty big books, but I'm working on book four. So just because I started a new series didn't mean I abandoned instruments. I am writing book four and I'm about halfway through, which is cool. Oh, nice. Uh, I mean, here you had a question about progression fantasy that I was yes. curious about. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you this because you know Davis, you you began writing, you started writing on epic fantasy books. You know, mm-hmm. you did a little bit of YA, but that was still epic as well. And now with this, you know, the instruments of omens and with the newest book, Blood of the Novice, uh, they're both on the, you know, they're both more, they're, they're more progressive fantasy than anything else. For our, you know, for the, for the, for the channel, listeners of, and the viewers of Steve's channel, can you maybe talk a little bit more about like what exactly is progression fantasy uh, and, you know, sure. how that kind of is a little bit different than epic fantasy because I don't want, you know, people to be like, oh, they're going in expecting epic, but they're not really getting that. And then they might, they might be confused about that. There's not a really hard definition for progression fantasy. I mean, I think one of the most um, most popular right now is Cradle, the Cradle series by Will White. But the way I think of it is it's usually about a single character or a, a small group of characters who are progressively getting more powerful. It's as simple as that. So they start off as the runts from the middle of nowhere, and then through luck or whatever, hard work or both, they discover a bigger world or the bigger world discovers them. And then in order to either stay alive or do something important, they have to master the magic of that world and become as powerful as anybody else in that world or as powerful as it's possible to become in that world. Now, that's um, that's how I think of it. And... Um, Instrument of Omens has some of that element because Cindershade, um, spoiler alert, he does become stronger as the books go on. But, I mean, that's kind of common, right? I mean, Randall Thor, when he left uh, his little village and the two rivers, he, he barely knew how to pull a sword out of the scabbard, much less use it. And he definitely got stronger. So you could, same with all the characters, really, from the two rivers. They, were, they weren't very powerful, and they all became super powerful by the end of the series. So from that regard, you could say that's a progression fantasy. But the difference is that in progression fantasy, there's almost like a, a really locked in focus on that growth. And there's numbers often associated with that growth. Like they're at copper, they're at tin, they're at bronze, they're at silver, they're at gold, they're at platinum. You know, you give them numbers or S rank uh, or F rank, E rank, D rank, C rank. You give them an actual scale that it's easy for the reader to say, okay, so they're at C rank right now, but the really super powerful people are at S rank, where they're at gold rank right now, but the overlords, they're way more powerful. I mean, it's just a way for the, the reader to understand where they stand in the grand scheme of things. Um, and that can sometimes be fun. Sometimes it can be limiting because as a writer, you have to stay in these narrow paths. But the way I think of it is, uh, most of the world exists on a continuum, so I'm going to say that all of these ranks are artificial, and just because they're at a lower rank doesn't mean they can't take out somebody at a slightly higher rank, but they're certainly not going to take out the god-level rank. Um, you know, a two-year-old's not going to be able to dunk on um, on LeBron James. It's just not going to happen. Maybe they could dunk on a three-year-old, though. <laughs> so that's kind of how I think of it. Is, uh, is it's There's just that really tight focus on the growth aspect itself that's not to say that the story isn't also important and the plot isn't important but uh, the people who really like progression they do like that clear delineation and so that's part of what i did with blood of a novice is gave those ranks Mm -hmm. and gave those delineations and um, it was a lot of fun but i also approached it a little bit differently because um, 
I watched this TV show called True Detective, mm-hmm. and uh, I watched this, uh, this, this podcast about True Detective in Seven, and I wasn't aware of this, but it's apparently common knowledge in, in the uh, uh, screenwriting community. But what you do with some of these characters is you, there's, there's a wound that they suffer, not a physical wound, an emotional wound that lingers with them as a ghost and it teaches them the wrong lesson or they take the wrong lesson. So all their life, they're harboring this ghost and living a life based on that ghost where the lesson that they learned is wrong and they have to recover from it. They have to learn the proper lesson so that they can heal. Mm -hmm. And so Cam, my main character, he's an alcoholic. He's uh, at the age of 15, he's gravely wounded and he becomes an alcoholic. So there's a bit of a trigger there because he never overcomes that alcoholism. Anytime he smells it or is offered it, it's there again, that desire. And all of the characters suffer from some kind of emotional scarring. So people who are looking for that overpowered main character that just goes around like Conan kicking over anthills and never, you know, really losing anything. That's not blood of a novice. That's it's, it's not dark. It's not grim dark by any stretch. I don't think it is. Is it in here? No, no, it's not grim dark. Definitely not. It's, it has a little bit of darkness, but it's not, I wouldn't even call it dark fantasy. It's more epic. I mean, it's epic and progression. Yeah, but the characters have scars that, that are evident. So th- them healing themselves is part of the progression aspect, actually. When you, when you talk about progression fantasy, uh, Dave, it was, that was fascinating. So I know for me, um, you know, um, I don't know if it has to do with the fact that I suck at math. I sucked at science in school. Maybe that's why I took arts and humanities in university, because I, I, I suck. I mean do my taxes and you know bounce my checkbook but you know i'm not i'm certainly no no uh, you obviously as a, as a doctor you have a more of a medical quantitative background but aside from that because it may not have nothing it might have nothing to do with it in terms of what you like like i know for me that i've always preferred soft softer magic right in mm-hmm. my fantasy i've always preferred the I'm stuff with like, you. like with the rings like you don't know where again of powers come yeah. from you don't know why he can do this or why saruman can do this but you know they can just do it and you know However, um, you know, many people prefer the hard uh, magic, more like a, a rigid, more scientific approach, like like Sanderson, you know, right. with, with the alloys, it's like all that, right? And, and you know, I, I've enjoyed both. You know, uh, Tom, uh, Howard Thomas Riley, a great uh, writer. He's written, um, you know, um, We Break Immortals. And, you know, his magic system to me rivals Sanderson. It's that mm-hmm. detailed. It's that you know, broken down to, you know, the, the, the last element and, and the fantastic book, but very hard magic system. So um, do you find that um, with progression fantasy and you've written progression fantasy, do you feel more constrained and more boxed in when you write because you have to subscribe to this, you know, essentially a harder uh, magic system as opposed to a bit more of the, I guess, you know, the, the latitude with, with soft magic to kind of, you know, okay, well, this just happens because you it happens. Move your hand. Yeah. 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 So I, I do... Um... I, I think I'm, I kind of mix it a little bit because in Cast and the Outcast, the seven different casts, the classical casts in the, in the series, um, they all have their own type of magic. So they're kind of rigid in that way. And then, um, and then in William Wilde, it's, it's much more hand wavy because they just create weaves and braids and decide whatever they want to do happens. 
if I allow it to happen. Uh, instrument of omens, it's going to become more hand wavy because at some point it's like, are you really going to explain how they're flying? You know, right? I mean, they just kind of go. You're not going to say, and then they get blah, 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 and roll the dice and off they went. I mean, I, I'd find that a little bit dull. So I just will probably just say they go. In Blood of a Novice, um, it's been restrictive because the characters are young and they're new and their powers are undeveloped. So they can't really do a lot. Like they have telekinesis, but they can literally lift five pounds, five feet in the air. That's it. <laughs> that doesn't really do much, you know? Uh, or it might have even just be one pound, one foot in the air. I can't remember, but it's not a lot. So uh, the magic, because they're weak, it, it, it constrains you with what you want to do, but eventually they'll get stronger. And, um, and there are levels. And so I've written in the constraints of all these different levels, um, how long they can do things, all those kind of things. I actually don't think that's going to hurt me at all or hinder me at all. I think it's actually going to guide me in the storytelling of what they can and can't do at any particular point and make me think about, about what, how they would approach a problem a little bit uh, more carefully. At least I hope so. And uh, moving on for a little bit from the progression for fantasy aspect, you mentioned that you're writing book four and you have mm -hmm. this new series out. So will you be alternating these books with the eternal ephemera books and the uh, instruments of omens Davis for the next few that's, years? Yeah, that's the plan is to go back and forth. I mean, um, from a financial perspective, the better idea would be to just write instrument of omens, right? I mean, that, mm -hmm. that's where, that's what I'm known for. And that's what's been my biggest seller, but, my heart is in the eternal ephemera as well. I didn't expect to write that series at all. It just kind of came to me um, uh, in a dream. And so I wrote it. And so um, th there's a, there's a big part of my heart that has to write that, even if it isn't the smart financial move, but I, I'm lucky enough still to be able to write what I want to read. How many books are you planning in the Eternal Ephemera? Because if I'm not wrong, Instruments of Omens, you have mentioned in an interview that it's going to be seven books long. Right. So, so Eternal Ephemera is probably going to be five big chunky books long. Oh, wow. That's okay. the goal. Yeah. So Eight it's not going to be a, yeah, so it's not going to be a trilogy, but, um, and it's going to take a while since I'm going back and forth, mm -hmm. but, uh, hey, good things come to those who wait, I hope, right? <laughs> Your fans must be, you know, like asking you, or where's the fourth book? Where's the fifth book? Right? Because they yeah, not wrong, that they, is your they biggest. They are seller. definitely asking about the fourth book of instruments. Um, some of them were afraid I was dropping it since Blood of a Novice was coming out, but I think they're okay now that I've been posting it on mm -hmm. Patreon. That hey, it's actually in existence. You can actually read it too. Sorry, I didn't want to be asking too many of the questions to you, uh, PL. You guys go ahead. Oh, uh, what do you do, Davis? Like, in a, with, with your work being so mentally exhausting and physically exhausting, you're you're a writer as well. You know, what, what are some like? How do you decompress? Like, you know, I know you're a big sports fan because you've been giving all these wonderful sports analogies. So that's very evident from over there. But besides yes. that, what else do you do to decompress? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I don't watch the Cincinnati Bengals when they're losing because <laughs> those sons of hmm, they lose. <laughs> 
well, they went to the Super Bowl last year. That was the most fun I've had watching football in forever. Um, but I like to watch sports. I do watch that a lot uh, when my team is playing or when a team I'm interested in is playing or something is going on that I'm interested in. Um, otherwise, I, I like to read. That helps me decompress. My kids are 21 and 19, and they've got really interesting brains. Uh, and they come down and and we'll talk for an hour about history, theology, philosophy, politics, world events. And that's just really cool. It's like I've got two boys that somehow they kind of like me, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's just really nice that they do. And so um, hanging out with them when they come down to talk to me is, is wonderful. I love that. That's like my favorite part of any week is when one of them wants to hang out with me. Uh, or watch a TV show with me. So those are the things that I do to decompress. I go out to dinner with my wife. I watch some TV, not a lot, but some, although I binge watched a Korean fantasy drama called Alchemy of Souls. And you just, you have to get in the right headspace for that because it's almost like uh, a live action anime without some of the annoying aspects of anime. Mm -hmm. Um but once you get past the bad CGI and you look at how lush the character, uh, the, the, the costuming, the set piece, the, the cinematography, they, they do an incredibly beautiful job. Uh, and once you accept how they are writing their characters, that's, just, that's their tick and it's okay. It's not right or wrong. It's for them. And you can accept it and move past it. And it takes about an episode and a half to really you know, just don't go in with preconceived notions and just accept what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. Then it's just such a wonderful show. And there's like, I think, 20 episodes, and I burned through them. Absolutely loved them. Well, check it out. Any, do you want to give any shout outs to any books and, or which you read recently or authors whom you love? You know, um, I always shout out to my friends because uh, I always love what they write. So Dirk Ashton, who wrote the most epic urban fantasy of all time in Paternus. Mm -hmm. Bryce O'Connor, who doesn't need any help selling The Iron Prince, but it's a fantastic <laughs> book. Uh, Phil Tucker, whose Bastion is wonderful, uh, but whose Chronicles of the Black Gate is even better. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really, really wish Phil would write the Chronicles of the White Gate but I'm assured that that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I actually wrote, read a romantic fantasy the other day. Uh, what was it called? Frost or something like that. It was by C.M. Crawford. I think that's the name of the author because it's a husband and wife team mm -hmm. uh, uh, writing as one um, in, under one pen name. But um, romantic fantasy authors, man, they can really just, lock you into a character so fast, just like romance authors. They just, bam, they've got mm -hmm. you. You know, it's just one page and suddenly you've got an entire character right in front of you. So I read those a lot. Uh, like Elise Kova, um, I read mm -hmm. one of her books. And it's the same thing. It's like they're just geniuses at creating a character in one page. And so I read those a lot just because I'm, I'm fascinated by how they, how they do what they do. I think their craft is beautiful. So those are my shout outs. Elise Koa has some really gorgeous covers. I love her covers. Like I remember. Yeah, The Air Awakens is yes. fantastic. Yes. That's a beautiful cover. Like, I haven't read her books, but I, I know her covers. Like they really draw the eye. 
Yeah, and, and again, these are not every book is going to appeal to every reader. That's fine. Everybody's different. Uh, I like the books. I enjoy them quite a bit, but I really, really am impressed by their craft. Well, I must say, you know, um, you know, and I know analytics isn't everything, but I mean, it, I mean, I, I just quickly popped onto Goodreads, and you know, looking at Instrument Romans one, um, you know, three thousand eight hundred thirty ratings and a four point four through four three average on Goodreads. I mean, my my, that is impressive, uh, Davis. I mean, that is that is definitely a successful book by any definition, um, especially for a self-published uh, fantasy writer. So kudos to you. Obviously, um, you know. People love your work, and you know they're you know it, that's a testament. So, I already added uh, you know that series to uh, Goodreads, uh, so I'm all keyed up now, and uh, you know I'll be getting to that you know sometime in the future. So I'm excited. Hope you enjoy it, really do. Let me know. Unless I you guys, sure. don't let me know. <laughs> <laughs> he has a he he is a really active fan. They might not be active online, but they hound him. You know, like I know because you can see it in the ratings and like the innumerable reviews like they just lap his stuff up yeah you obviously have quite a wide audience and, and you're quite popular there's there's no those numbers don't lie right you know no. what I mean? so so yeah you know kudos to you that's 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 a great success i'm just um you know blown away by you know um how successful now um you know davis mentioned will white new york times bestseller you know mm -hmm. the, i mean indie indie uh publishing regardless irrespective of genre fantasy otherwise i mean it's totally different now you know what i mean yeah with the, absolutely. With the quality the caliber the credibility that it has now in the industry it's still different like i said davis that's why i'm, I'm so i'm so um you know i'm so 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 incredibly um, blown away by by the fact that you came in the game at that time when it wasn't like this and and you right. still had so much success so you know i think that's something you look back on with with extreme pride you know uh absolutely i I, I'm still in a state of shock a lot of times, like that I get to do this as, you know, I get to be a writer, I get to meet other writers and it's like, we're all in our little guild. I never expected that I could be part of that. I mean, that's just uh, magical. Like when I go to Dragon Con, my favorite uh, Christmas of the year, um, there's all these writers uh, in the West and, and I know them, I've read a lot of their books. Uh, they're wonderful people, and I get to be a part of that. It's just, uh, it's it still takes a little bit of time to get used to. I still feel like, man, when are they going to kick me out of this? <laughs> yeah, when are they going to cancel my membership? I feel the same yeah. way, you know. And 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 keep in mind, of course, that the writing community is now. I mean, it's so big. It's it's authors, writers, agents, booktubers, mm -hmm. you know, editors. Yeah. It's just you know, there's there's so many people. Uh, besides authors that are, are part of this community, great people like Stephen to hear that, you know, really do so much to help promote our books and, and bring it to light. So thank you, gentlemen, again for that. It means oh, so much, yeah. you know. But uh, yeah, it, it, it is. It, you do feel sometimes like, wow, you know, I, I was uh, I was on Philip Chase's channel earlier today for Dear Doctor Fantasy, and I'm thinking, I'm on Philip Chase's channel. This, I, you know, this isn't real, right? You know what I mean? And you have to pinch yourself almost. You know that that you have these opportunities, um, you know, and so yeah. But kudos to you, Davis. You're obviously successful, and to be that successful as a self-published fantasy author, you know, in in the time that you started, I mean, like I said, should be it's very changed fun. a lot. I mean, back in 2014, it, it wasn't thought of as being necessarily a viable career, um, mm -hmm. you know. And there used to be this old um, 
this old statistic tossed around that in, in America, there were like 4,500 people who are making a living as fiction writers. And that statistic was just passed on, passed on. It was some stupidly low number like that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was at Dragon Con. I was just having breakfast. We just walked out. I don't know if you remember this. Me, me here was with me at Dra- or was with us at Dragon Con. So we walk out to go have breakfast. And we meet a couple of other authors who are sta- uh, sitting uh, uh, at the at the table so we're just talking to them and I just counted up there's like nine authors there working full-time <laughs> and that's their job their job is as writers and there were nine authors just sitting around these two tables it's like five thousand really that seems <laughs> kind of low <laughs> if nine of them are just sitting at this table at, in Atlanta doing you know just having breakfast together and we just all run into each other <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, people and you know statistics again. You know, they're not always they're not always some. You know, they can be be fallible, right? But mm-hmm. you know, I think um, you know, I think for a lot of us as authors, you know, and especially in the indie game, we we measure ourselves against these benchmarks, these artificial benchmarks. Sometimes that don't mm-hmm. whether it's getting an Amazon bestseller tag or you know you sold like you said you sold your first hundred books. You know, for me, as one of them was after I sold a thousand copies. You know, and you know, yeah. I, whatever your 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 personal you know, achievement line is, but I think people do have to remember that, you know, um, some of the other statistics, like, you know, um, you know, how many people actually finish the book that they write, yep. you know, yeah. I mean, I'd love to know yeah. that statistic, you know, how many people write a second, a third, a fourth, a 10th, right. I'm mm-hmm. sure the numbers drop off exponentially yep. um, as you, you move forward. So the fact that you, you've written a book and published it, that in itself is an accomplishment. I think, you know, for me, I know I'm taking it one day at a time and one book at a time now, just trying to, you know, hopefully like you one day, Davis, you know, you have quite an extensive body work, hopefully be able to live long enough to look back and have an, you know, extensive body work that yeah. some people, somebody's read and, you know, maybe somebody's enjoyed. And I think that's, I'm keeping my goal simple for now, but I am relishing every little, you know, success that I feel is, you know, something, you know, that's uh, tangible. So, And also like, yeah. you know, the indie scene is changing. Like there's, you can't compare it to the traditional side. Like what those old successful standards were, they're, they're no, they no longer apply. It's like, it's going to change you. It's probably going to look different even five years from now in 2027. Maybe you might think of like, oh, that was such a wild time in 2022, but it's going to keep yeah. changing. Yeah, so. one thing I've really wor- wondered and worried about is, you know, where are the new Sanderson's, Jordan's, Martin's, even good kinds? You are, Davis. Uh, you are <laughs> not not in traditional publishing. That's what I'm talking about, though. It's like uh, you know those those giants of of publishing. They don't seem to be discovering them in the traditional publishing field and traditional fantasy. Now I think there it's... are tons of them in uh, YA. Yeah. There are some humongous yeah. bestsellers yes. In, yes. Tra- in traditional YA fantasy. Sarah Moss, yeah. for instance. Yeah, Sarah Moss, Holly Black, a lot of those are yeah. really yeah, big. But, um, but in terms of what would be considered traditional epic fantasy, I don't know of any. Like, Evan started out as an indie author, Evan Winter. Yeah. So did Anthony Ryan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like uh, Josiah Bancroft. He started out and he's got one of the most beautiful series of all time yeah, yeah, in the Tower yeah. of Babel. Um, uh, but Jonathan French, I mean, these are these are authors who have sold well, but they all started out as indie. Like, mm-hmm. where where's the discovery of the next 
Robert Jordan for a traditional publishing house like Penguin or Tor or Del Rey. I don't, I wonder I think, about that. I think, and you know, that's an excellent point, Davis. I think now from my perspective, you know, I have a lot of friends that are traditionally published. I have a lot of friends that are um, mm -hmm. indie published just like you do, just like we all do, all four of us do. I'm sure we could dial up hundreds if we all went through our, our phone book. There's hundreds of authors literally in both, both, uh, sure. both venues. But I think what's happened now is indie has changed that with the saturation of indie authors. I mean, you have authors that, you know, you, you aptly pointed out, Davis, that to start out indie, they've gone traditional. Some of them have gone back. Some of them said, you know what? Right. I was talking about this with Philip Chase today that, you know what? Some authors said, you know what? I, I, I'm with Orbit and this is a great series I have with Orbit, but I have this series on the shelf that I know they won't touch and I really want to publish it. So I'm just going to self-publish it. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and they do it. And and I think with with people, you mentioned Brandon Sanders, with Brandon Sanders' Kickstarter and actually essentially self-publishing, you know, the raising millions and millions of dollars for essentially self-publishing a series. Like, I mean, that's that's yeah. a game changer, right? Like, yep. You, like, I, I think now it's actually so saturated in in a in a weird way. Like Mir said, I think we're in a weird transitional time in in publishing that, you know, indies are not quite like there's there's not 50 Will Whites out there that mm -hmm. are on the New York Times, but there's a lot of indie authors who silently sell thousands and thousands of books. You know, there, there are, um, that, that author I mentioned, I, I thought it's C.N. Crawford, I can't remember for sure, but there's like 10 or 12 authors like that in the romantic fantasy genre that probably outsell Will, which is mm -hmm. shocking yeah. when you shocking. think about it. I mean, it's yeah. like these monstrously popular authors that nobody knows about, or yeah. at least I, they're, they're fans and readers, obviously know them very, very well. Yeah. But, you know, I'm just discovering them and I'm kind of like, where the hell do these people come from? <laughs> yeah, because a lot of them aren't on social media and they've managed yeah. to be successful almost without social media for well, the most it's, part. It's it's, they're actually on social media. It's just that, you know, social media is so compartmentalized that, yes. you yes. know, what we see in social media isn't what other people are seeing. And so to me, it's like I'm discovering this entire new continent of incredible writers with their books that I thought, oh, it just blew up and, you know, God touched down and seven days later, there it was. But that, no, <laughs> these people have been working hard for years and their fans have known of them for years, uh, but they're incredibly popular um, and uh, we just don't know it or I didn't. It's really cool, though. And you know that years. that exists in traditional movies as well. You know, I, I point to just someone like Janie Wirtz, who is an international mm -hmm. best-selling author, who has mm -hmm. you know written co-written a series with with Raymond Feist that is you know a mega series, the yep. Empire trilogy. But yeah. but really and truly, she is you know criminally underrated as an author, and she's she's a contemporary of George R. R. Martin. She came at the same time. Her books are certainly of that caliber. Like, but you know, there's a lot of traditionally published authors that still don't have. Um, you know the, the the acclaim commensurate with, you know how good how good writers they are and how well established they are in their body of work and how prolific they are and you know and now some of them are now being discovered you know years after they essentially yeah. discovered years after they wrote the first series so it's a weird it's a weird time it's a weird time it's a great time for those other authors though because if you think of somebody like Jennifer Robertson and her Tiger and Dell series which I I love that series. But, you know, 
if in another time frame, those would be out of print. Nobody would ever get a chance mm -hmm. to discover mm -hmm. them. But now they're yeah. electronically available and you can you can read them. They're worth reading. They're wonderful books or the Riddle Master of Head series, which is just one of my favorite of all time. I love that. I love that Patricia McKillop can love be discovered all new again. So it's just really a, a cool time, too. You know, it's a weird and cool time. Well, as long as, you know, I always say, as long as you can find a way to keep your books in print, there's always hope, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Um, yep. You know, and, and for self-published authors, that's definitely within our control. Uh, and the way the current, you know, uh, setup is that as long as we can keep our books out there and we don't take them down ourselves, yep. then they'll always be out there. So yep. That's true. And Davis, we appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time with us. Uh, sure. There's a, this there's was a question. Fun. Yeah, there's a question I always like to ask our guests. And, uh, and that is, uh, what was your first job? My first job was uh, janitor. Mm -hmm. I was a janitor for the Public Library of Cincinnati in Hamilton mm -hmm. County. So that was a summer job. Um, that was my first job. So I cleaned toilets. Mop floors, mowed lawns. That was my job. How were your allergies back then? Were they as bad as they are now? <laughs> no, I, I had no allergies back then. I mean, it was it's it's one of those terribly awful things where I had no allergies at all until I was like 26, 27 years old. Mm -hmm. And now I go outside and I just inhale sharply and suddenly, you know, there it goes. Yeah. Uh, and I have to take my uh, antihistamine. I have to take my singular i have to sometimes take flonase mm -hmm. oh, it's just miserable i'm just glad those medicines are available i don't know how i'd survive without yeah. those medicines but back then no problem <laughs> i could <laughs> mow all day long and not sneeze <laughs> once and what did you learn from that experience that stuck with you that i didn't want to be a janitor <laughs> it's a good lesson to learn right? it, it was it was uh it wasn't a hard job in, in terms of, you know, did it tax me mentally? But, uh, man, I was out there mowing lawn six hours a day. And I say I was a janitor, but really I was a groundskeeper. Mm -hmm. So I cleaned the bathrooms in the morning, you know, cleaned the windows in the morning. And then they'd ship me off to go mow a couple of, of lawns. And I'd just be out there pushing a lawnmower all day. And you don't have to think when you're doing that. You just got to keep your wheels on the center line and go back and forth, back and forth, back and <laughs> forth. And uh, so it gave me a lot of time to think. But at the same time, I was like, I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's where your medical career was born. Yeah, it, it wasn't a bad job. But I, I honestly think everybody should do a hard physical job. Because for some people, it's wonderful. Uh, and for other people, it's just like, yeah, I don't want to do that. But it's worth doing for, for almost all of us to, to feel uh, the sun on us all day long, to be mm -hmm. hot and sweaty and tired at the end of the day. It's, it's actually a good thing, I think. Mm -hmm. I agree. And Mahir, I don't think we've asked you. You've been on, but I don't think we've asked you about your first job. So that this is going to be a weird answer because like because i grew up in india we don't really like you know we were like as kids we were not pushed to have jobs like our focus only on study 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 studies so my first job was when i came to the us and it was actually a clinical research coordinator because i was doing my masters in the uh in like uh in the evenings so i was like 
I needed a job. And I, you know, of course I, you know, asked my, because my mom was in the medical field. She was like, oh, there, there's a clinical coordination job. You might be interested. I'm like, I emailed the doctors and they, you know, I got a job, which was really interesting because it's not an easy thing with zero training. The only thing I, and I didn't even know the ABCs of the job, but I learned quickly on the fly. So that was my first job. A very weird experience. It's, but it's, it's something which Davis will know about this because in India, like, you know, we, like we don't do jobs during or like, you know, education years or you finish your education by like about 20, 22s, like when you get to our bachelor's or like, you know, like we don't have bachelor's, but we do our junior college and then we directly go to college, whatever it is in art, sciences and commerce. And after you finish mm-hmm. that, that's when we, you get a, your proper job. So, but I would have, if I had stayed back in India, that would be, I would be a doctor. So that was it. Hmm. Nice. That's interesting. So after you, so about 2022, you, that's when you uh, venture out after you're done with your education. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But, but also in India, we, we stay with our parents. Like there's no moving out as such. Like in, in India, most of the families like stay together, at least stay yeah, nearby. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's like yeah. you, you live in your parents' house. Maybe you might buy the adjoining house or the flat besides it, but you still stay around your parents. Like if I was living in India, my parents would be living with me. I would be living with my parents. You know, that's just, mm. that's the normal thing. Like you, that's nobody bats an eyelid because that's what's expected or mm-hmm. that is the norm. So of course, not to say that people don't live separately. They do, but it's mostly the, it's mostly the, the fact that, that you stay with your parents and then your children grow up and then so on and so forth. It's nice, you know, free daycare. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> There's always that. <laughs> So, uh, Davis and Mahir, thanks again for coming by and hanging out with us. Really appreciate your time. Of course, Mahir, it's always a pleasure. Oh, come on. You just say that. It's all Davis, you know. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you for the kind words, Mahir. Hey, I'm a fan, so you're going to thank me. Just send me the checks. <laughs> I'll send you the checks. At DragonCon. I'll bring you a signed copy of something. Nice. And, uh, Davis, if people want to find you and more about your work, where can they find you? So I've got a website, www.davisashura.com, D-A-V-I-S-A-S-H-U-R-A. Uh, I'm also on Facebook under that same name and on Instagram. I think I recently uh, restarted a Twitter account yep. because um, I've got some books on consignment at Barnes & Noble and they wanted me to have a Twitter account. So I was like, crap. All right. So mm-hmm. I did. So those are the places you can find me, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on my website. My books are available on Amazon and on Audible. Um, the print copies are available for all of those books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, except Blood of an Office. Blood of an Office still doesn't have a print copy, but it will soon enough. Nice. And all those links will be down below in the description if you're on the podcast or on YouTube. And Mahir, where's the best place to find you? Well, uh, that's on Fantasy Book Critic, where we post all our reviews. We are also on Twitter, at Fantasy Book Crit. Uh, and of course, if you hang out around Steve's forums, you'll see me <laughs> over there, too. Nice. And uh, Mr. P.L. Stewart, where, where can people find you? Uh, for stuff about uh, my writing, the John King Saga, website, Um I'm on Twitter. That's my preferred social media handle. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, but it's, they're all at P.L. Stewart Writes. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also find me, my reviews on Goodreads, and uh, well, before we go blog, which is led by the incredible Beth Tabler. I'm an assistant editor there, so you can see my reviews there, post on the blog. Um, yeah, um, my DMs are open. You want to talk about writing, and of course, you can find me beside my 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 wonderful colleague here, Steve, on any episodes, and Taylor from Maybe Between the Pages on any episodes of Page Chewing. Awesome. 
thanks again, everyone. Really appreciate your time and thanks for hanging out with us. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. Thank Thanks, you. Davis. Thanks, BL. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye, everyone. Bye.